Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and I have the double delight today of speaking with Sohini Sarah Pillay, uh, who is a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley, uh, and also uh, her, her partner in publication, uh, Nell Shapiro-Hawley, who is also a PhD candidate. Uh, uh, she's at uh, Chicago. She's also a preceptor in Sanskrit at Harvard University. So we have a number of paramparas here today that are united to talk about this um, um, landmark publication on um, uh, one of the greatest pieces of literature known to humankind, uh, this little thing called the Mahabharata. Um, um, and the publication is called Many Mahabharatas, brand new Sunni publication. Uh, um, Sohini and Nell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, my pleasure. As I said, it's a double delight. Uh, I, I enjoy all the conversations I have, but I might um, um, there might be some extra oomph when people are talking about Sanskrit narrative or the goddess or things that I know something about. Um, I mostly ask uh, I mostly ask naive questions and I play them on this podcast, and a lot of the time I don't have to play. Um, but. Um, it, you have to tell us how this came about. Like, how did this, this, this monumental publication come about? So, sure, I can take that. Um, so, uh, Nell and I first met uh, in 2015. I can't believe we've known each other this long already, Nell, um, at the um, annual conference on South Asia in Madison, Wisconsin. And... Um, Nell was giving a really fascinating paper um, about using um, Kuntika, who is a late 10th century Sanskrit literary theorist. Again, Nell, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm amazed that you remember the details of this. This is wonderful. It was a fantastic paper, and she was talking about Kuntika's readings of um, a play, the Veni Samhara, and um, a Mahakavya, the Kiratarjaniya. And um, I just remember being so excited that there was another PhD candidate who was working on retellings of the Mahabharata, which is what I work on. I work on regional retellings in Tamil and Hindi, whereas Nell works on Mahabharatas in the world of Kavya and in drama. And so we met first that year. And then the next year at Madison, we met again. And Nell was giving another fantastic paper on a retelling of the Mahabharata, this time the Shishupalabhadda. And um, afterwards, we went for a long walk to one of the many lakes in Madison. And um, we brought up the idea of doing, uh, it was called a pre-conference at the time, uh, now they're called symposiums at Madison, based on um, retellings of the Mahabharata. Um, so I think we're all familiar, you know, with Paula Richmond and her two, you know, mo- not more than two, multiple fantastic volumes on the Ramayana tradition, specifically many Ramayanas, which I think is kind of a, you know, a household name for students of South Asian studies and South Asian religion and literature. And um, Nell and I were talking about how, you know, there wasn't really kind of an equivalent volume or conference for the Mahabharata. You know, there were the Sanskrit Mahabharata, as you know, Raj, there is a wealth of sources, especially on the critical edition of the Sanskrit Mahabharata. But what was funny was Nell and I knew many scholars who were doing really exciting work on retellings of the Mahabharata. 
And we thought, you know, since Madison has this space for these pre-conferences, for these symposiums, why not bring people together? And one thing also we were really excited to do was um, bring some more junior scholars like Nell and myself, other PhD candidates who are doing really exciting work on the Mahabharata. Um, one of my favorite volumes in the essay is by uh, Tim Lorndale and this fantastic 10th century Kannada Mahabharata, which um, kind of brings Duryodhana to the forefront of the story. And again, just, you know, challenging these views we have the Mahabharata, you know, we think of Duryodhana as the supposed villain of the narrative. Um, and so we ended up and, uh, organizing the conference in 2017, I believe. And uh, then actually another just wonderful Mahabharata scholar, um, Pamela Lockspeech, um, encouraged Nell and I to put um, together a volume kind of based on the conference. But one thing we were able to do also there with the volume was we were able to bring in international scholars and their voices. So for example, Sudha um, Gopalakrishnan and her work on the Kudiyatam tradition in the Mahabharata, as well as Eva de Klerk at Ghent University and her wonderful scholarship on um, Jain Upper Brahmsha Mahabharatas. And she brought in one of her PhD candidates, uh, Simon Munont, to co-author an essay with her. So it was just, um, it was a way for, I think, you know, Nell and I were just, again, really excited about bringing these other retellings of the Mahabharata to the forefront, especially for Nell and I, because, you know, again, she works on Kavya and dramas in, in Sanskrit, and I work on these regional vernacular retellings, you know, between 800 and 1800 CE. And I think we were able to really showcase that in the volume. So that's basically how the volume came about. Well, of course, there has to be a frame story or backstory about how this came about. Otherwise, it wouldn't be about the Mahabharata. Exactly. But how, um, how many contributions are there and how are they organized? There are 18 chapters in the book, which we obviously did on purpose <laughs> or worked for on purpose. 18 is, of course, a, a major number in, in the world of the Mahabharata, and we wanted to pay homage to that. Um, but as with, as with all things in the Mahabharata, there's always a, sort of 18 and then something else, right? There's always a little bit that's left out and then sort of tacked on at the end. And so our something else was our foreword by Paula Richmond. And it was wonderful that we got Paula to do this forward because we so much intended our, our many Mahabharatas as a volume. In some ways, it's a, all academic Mahabharatas are sort of retellings of the Mahabharata themselves, right? And, and for us, it was really important that we also sort of retold many Ramayanas, in our own way, obviously, from from a Mahabharata perspective. So, um, so we we very much wished for many Mahabharatas to recall many Ramayanas, and it was great that Paula did her her foreword, in which she ended up talking about yet another Mahabharata. This time, a, a much more modern, uh, dramatic production. So. There, so there's her foreword. Then there's Sohini's in my introduction, and in our introduction which I imagine we'll touch on later in the conversation, but our, in our introduction, we really wanted to be able to give the reader a serious account of why many Mahabharatas matters, um, why we're not just looking at one Mahabharata, but why it's so important to, 
to look at all of them in conversation with one another. Um, and then we have 17 more essays, uh, of which Sohini and I each wrote one. And um, I guess that leaves 15 other contributors. Yeah. No, 16, because the one was a co-author. So <laughs> there were, I guess there were 18 of us in the end. <laughs> sure, but tell us about the sections of the book. Yes, gladly. So in our, in our first section we focus on the Sanskrit Mahabharata itself. Now you might ask why. If the book is about many Mahabharatas, about retellings of the Mahabharata story, why do we focus on Sanskrit Mahabharata, the, the Sanskrit Mahabharata to begin with? And the answer is that we very much wanted to show that when it comes to themes of multiplicity and multivocality and retelling and echoing and mirroring, illusion, irony, those themes totally emerge from the Sanskrit Mahabharata itself. And each of the three essays in that section demonstrates an aspect of multiplicity as it exists in the Mahabharata, the Sanskrit Mahabharata, in, in some ways taking very seriously like A.K. Ramanujan's claim that repetition is the structure sort of narratively of the Mahabharata and that that's really important. So our first essay by Bob Goldman talks about a thematic kind of multiplicity, the theme of genocide and how stories about genocide or rather genocides that are just almost completed. Again, we return to this theme of almost and then leaving a little bit at the end, right? Um, so so he, Goldman talks about genocide as a sort of framing uh, device in, in the Mahabharata thematically and the many genocides that we see there in the story. Um, we also have multiplicity in the sense of sort of the, the different layers of the text, if we're going to read it that way, um, the, the idea of a sort of multiplicity of story construction or different narratives coming together. And this is what you see in David Gittimer's piece about the story of Iravan. And in this piece, Gittimer is showing how the sort of existing structure of the, of the Sanskrit Mahabharata allows for for there to be all of these amazing backstories sort of created within the body of the text itself. And the story of the birth of, of Iravan, um, who is the son of Arjuna and his serpent uh, queen, serpent princess lover, Ulupi, is one of those places where the Mahabharata is like, hmm, we sort of have this character. Okay, what's this backstory? <laughs> Let's go into that. Um, and so that is a, is a sort of narrative multiplicity as well. And then finally, in, um, in Sally Sutherland Goldman's chapter, we have an engagement with multiplicity sort of on two levels. One is just in terms of the narrative that she picks. It's about the um, interaction between uh, King Janaka and the um, nun Sulabha, which of course happens within King Janaka's own mind, where Sulabha possesses him, and the two of them sit together in his own mind and have a conversation. And it's like, what, what more than that could be the sort of like perfect uh, emulation of, of what the Mahabharata is all about, right? A conversation sort of 
two very distinct voices happening sort of in one mind. Um, but on another level, her essay really inter- interacts strongly with both the critical edition and the Vulgate and the commentarial tradition attached to the Sanskrit Mahabharata. So just showing that when we talk about the Sanskrit Mahabharata, obviously we're talking about what is itself a multiple entity. So that's part one. <laughs> and in part two, we really wanted to open up the category of what does it mean to be a Sanskrit Mahabharata, right? There are so many Sanskrit Mahabharatas that are not the epic that we think of as being composed or compiled by Vyasa, right? Um, There are Mahabharatas after Mahabharatas in Sanskrit literature. And so we go from the sort of earlier Kavya Nataka um, genre with my paper on um, the Pancharatra, which is a very interesting uh, Mahabharata of really unknown date and unknown authorship, but it's certainly in Sanskrit and it's certainly a retelling of the Mahabharata. Um, And it's a super interesting piece um, of of literature because it retells the story of the Virata Parvan and actually cuts off the Mahabharata story there. The Pandavas and the Karvas uh, agree to split the kingdom and the war never happens. Whether this is an ending we should believe or not is a question that I will be answering in my dissertation. Um, And I'll give you a hint. The answer is, I don't think we should. But but with that aside, in my essay, I try to show how um, the Pancharatra does a really interesting thing with the Sanskrit Mahabharata in taking the character of Arjuna when he is in disguise as the dance teacher Brahanala in Virata's court in the fourth book. And really does like a deep dive on what it sort of means to be in disguise and what it means to become someone else. Um, then we have, we have Larry McRae's amazing essay on Magha Shishupalavata. And again, what you, what you have here is a very interesting character study. We show how sort of both of these chapters really show how one of the amazing things that you could do in Sanskrit poetry and drama is are these deep dives into uh, the characters. They sort of slow down the pace almost of the epic and allow you to really explore what's going on in the sort of minds and hearts of these of these figures. Um, and so Larry McRae does a wonderful job of that by showing how the Shishupalavadha really lingers on and explores this um, intimate friendship between Krishna and Yudhishthira which is something that you don't often see in, in the Sanskrit Mahabharata, but it's right there for Magha to, to pounce on um, and to explore and deepen and really take to a whole other place. And then we have the following two chapters in that section really show that when you say Sanskrit Mahabharata, that itself is actually a really, really big term. It stretches well beyond the, the first millennium and into other languages and other time periods. So we have Sudhago Palakrishnan's piece on the Kudiyatam production of uh, Kulashekara's Subhadra Dhanamjaya, which is, of course, uh, a retelling of the love story of Arjuna and Subhadra. Um, but retold in such a way in Kuriyatam that there is this amazing section of the production 
in which the vidushika, the jester figure, um, engages in an entire performance of what's called uh, purushartha kuta. And doing, doing this purushartha kuta is, um, it, it is an incredible thing. It involves retail, it involves sort of taking a point of view uh, of the purushartas that's like totally uh, humorous and ironic um, and saying that instead of, you know, dharma, artha, kama, and moksha, what do we have? We have uh, dispute, vivadam, vinodam, and vanchanam, pleasure and cheating. We have ashanam, eating, and raja seva, sort of slavishly uh, serve, serving a, a master who will then enrich you. Um, so to the idea that the Mahabharata itself, sort of at the uppermost level of the story, provides a framework for this kind of thing to happen on stage. And by the way, for it to happen mostly in Malayalam, right? Um, so it's, it's sort of a, a, a general framework of like the literary world of the Mahabharata within that a performance tradition that is still alive today, within that a Sanskrit drama, within that a Malayalam section, within that a total disavowal of the entire structure of the Purushartas, um, I feel like in many ways Vyasa would have approved. Um, and then there's, finally, we've got Amanda Culp's wonderful essay on um, three modern day productions of Kalidasa's Abhijnana Shakuntala, which of course is a Mahabharata retelling, and uh, but not one that we often think of as a Mahabharata retelling. And Amanda does this amazing job of showing that in these three modern day productions, these productions were putting on the play by Kalidasa, but really looking to the Sanskrit Mahabharata for inspiration. And so you see the sort of, the, what it means to be a Sanskrit Mahabharata, like by, you know, 19... 89 is like a production in English of a Sanskrit drama that is also in many ways just totally inspired by the Sanskrit Mahabharata. So anyway, that's that's the big, big story of part two, which is what is Sanskrit Mahabharata? And those are two of four parts. Yes. And I'm presuming that that uh, Sohini will talk about the next two parts, correct? Yeah, sure. Yes. Um, so the third part of the book, which is very near and dear to my heart, uh, because it's about regional and vernacular Mahabharatas from pre-modern South Asia, um, is dedicated to, you know, Mahabharatas that were composed between, as I said earlier, 800 and 1800 CE. And one thing, you know, Nell and I were trying to do in this section of the volume was to um, highlight some retellings and some retellings in languages that haven't really been studied before in English so much. So, you know, we have uh, retelling in uh, Kannada, Apabramsha, Telugu, and then we also have tellings in Hindi and Tamil languages that are more commonly seen in South Asian studies. And so the first essay in um, part three is again by uh, Tim Lorndale, who I uh, mentioned earlier, and his study of the Sahasa Bhima Vijaya, which is this 10th century Kannada Mahabharata. Um, and again, as I um, hinted at earlier, Tim is um, contending that this text, which actually, if you think about the name of the poem, right, the victory of bold Bhima, um, many scholars have asserted that this is a text that retells the Mahabharata from Bhima's perspective, um, especially because um, the, the poet Rana um, compares his own patron to Bhima in the beginning of the poem. 
Um, but Tim contends that this is actually a Mahabharata told from the perspective of Duryodhana, the supposed anti-hero or villain of the text, and that it's actually a revisionist interpretation of the Mahabharata, and it kind of opposes this normative um, pro-Pandava account we usually associate with the Sanskrit Mahabharata. And it's just a really fantastic essay, one of my favorites in the volume, if I can say that. Um, but the next chapter is another one which I love particularly um, by Harshita Murthy Kamath. Um, and it is, and I just have to share the title of this essay because it's such a great title. It's Three Poets, Two Languages, One Translation, The Evolution of the Telugu Mahabharatam. And um, so here, uh, Harshita is looking at um, the Mahabharatam, which was actually composed by three different poets. We have Nanaya in the 11th century, and then it was continued by Tikana around the 13th century, and then a hundred years later, it was completed by Arana. And Harshita is really looking at the relationship between Telugu and Sanskrit soundscapes, prosody, characterization, and style. And in the end, her examination of different sections of the text by each of these three different poets um, reveals the immense complex complexities of what really is the process of vernacularization in this Telugu Mahabharata retelling. The next chapter is uh, co-authored by Ava de Klerk and Simon Winont, and it is about uh, two Jain Apabramsha Mahabharatas, and again, returning to the Virata Parvan, uh, which is one of the most um, fascinating books of the Sanskrit Mahabharata, and also one of the books that kind of retells the whole Mahabharata in a way within just this one book. Um, and in this chapter, both Eva and Simon are looking at two Apabramsha Mahabharatas. The first is Svayambhudeva's 10th or 9th century, Ritanemi Chairu. And the next uh, Apabramsha text that they're looking at is Raidu's 15th century Harivamsa Purana. And um, so, you know, it's interesting because Apabramsa in a way, you know, having a, a chapter on Upabramsa in the sections, I think some people might be a little confused because Upabramsa is a trans-regional language. It's not associated with um, a particular region of South Asia. But it's interesting because there's evidence that these two Upabramsa Mahabharatas were both read in 15th century Jain circles in Gwalior, and which is in present-day Madhya Pradesh. And so by comparing each of these two poems' depiction of Kichika, you know, um, Virata's horrible brother-in-law who attempts to rape Draupadi during the Pandava's year of exile, Eva and Simon highlight this really rem remarkable diversity we see within just the gene of a Brahmsha Mahabharata tradition itself. And then, and if, I, the, if I may... Yeah. In, one of the amazing things about this chapter is that in true many Mahabharata's fashion, it purports to be about only two Mahabharata's. Oh, yes. In fact, it discusses five, right? So there are the two Upper Brahmsha ones, but then it also touches on an earlier Jain Sanskrit Mahabharata. It also touches on another earlier um, Jain like Mahabharata in Aradham Magadhi. Um, it talks about a, a 15th century Mahabharata in Hindi that was more, much more Hindu that we'll get to later. But anyway, I mean, this is, this is what happened in a lot of the chapters of the book is that 
the authors started with, okay, I'm going to look at one Mahabharata. And then you end up talking about, you know, three or five or seven. Um, anyway, sorry, go on, Sohini. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was really difficult. Like, even in my own essay, I, I said I was talking about two, but in my conclusion, I think I bring up like six or five different regional Mahabharatas. It's just, it's really hard. It's hard to just talk about one. Um, but but it's interesting. So with the next essay, we're kind of still in this world of 15th century Gwalior, but returning to that Hindi Mahabharata that uh, Nell just mentioned, um, Vishnu Vas's Bond of Charit, um, which is, I think, you know, the oldest extant Hindi retelling of the Mahabharata that we have access to. And this is an essay by the wonderful Heidi Powells. And Heidi, like Ava and Simon, again, she focuses on Kichika and his really gruesome, horrible murder at the hands of Bhima. But um, Heidi is drawing on kind of these methods of microhistory and, and methods from performance studies to see how um, the Pandav chart kind of interrogates the relationship between, on the one hand, emotion, and on the other hand, literary performance at this kind of historical moment in Gwalior when Pasha and vernacular languages are really emerging as an important mode of literary expression. Um, and then the final chapter in this section is um, my own essay, um, which is comparing um, Billy Putur's 15th century Tamil Bharatam and Sabal Singh Chauhan's 17th century Pasha or Old Hindi Mahabharat. Um, and again, these are two Mahabharatas that were composed in very different regional languages at opposite ends of the Indian subcontinent. Um, and, you know, these two languages, Tamil and Basha, right, they have different linguistic, geographic, and literary trajectories, but they share this really striking feature, and that is that they both describe themselves as the charta, or the deeds of Krishna, um, who is a very important character in the Mahabharata, as we all know, but uh, is not the character necessarily people would identify as the protagonist of the Mahabharata. Usually it's one of the pandas, Pandavas, all five of them. But um, for Billy and Johan, they're retelling Krishna's story. Um, and so in my essay, I argue that one of the most effective methods that both Billy and Johan use to recast the Mahabharata as the deeds of Krishna is um, to insert these really elaborate invocations in the beginnings of different sections of their text that um, are in praise of Krishna or Vishnu or Ram um, to kind of re cast the Mahabharata as a devotional Krishna charitra. So that's the third section. And then we have the final section of many Mahabharatas, which is about um, kind of the really diverse ways that the Mahabharata, or perhaps the idea of the Mahabharata, have inspired South Asian literary, religious, artistic, political thought from the late 19th century until the 21st. And so we begin with a wonderful essay by Ahona Panda. Um, in, and again, I have to read the title of this. This is just such a great title. It's um, How to Be Political Without Being Polemical, the debate between Bonkim Chandra Chattopadhyay and Rabindranath Tagore over the Krishna Chorta. And um, Ahona is analyzing two very different accounts of Krishna's role in the Sanskrit Mahabharata. So again, re returning to the world of the Sanskrit Mahabharata, but with that is being told by these two very seminal Bengali authors and political thinkers. And so in 1886, you know, when Ban Kim was actively engaged in fostering the cause of Hindu nationalism, he wrote the Krishna Chorotra, which presents Krishna as a 
historical figure and the embodiment of, you know, the perfect king and householder. Um, but Ahona shows us through a close, very close reading um, of Tagore's quite harsh uh, 1896 review of the Christian Charta. And she asserts that in contradistinction to Von Kim, Tagore believes that the Mahabharata is politically relevant, not because it's a historical text, but because of its value as, as a literary work and um, a, a work of literature that explores flawed heroism. Um, and it, it kind of leads nicely into the next essay of the book, which is also about um, kind of Bengali interpretations of the Sanskrit Mahabharata, but this time by um, Buddha Dev Bose. And this is uh, an essay by Shudipto Kobiraj. And, um, you know, this again, this is a more um, contemporary Bengali literary engagement with the Mahabharata. And um, it's Buddha Dev Bose's 1974 prose study of the epic. And um, Shudipto actually uses Mikhail Bakhtin's very famous essay, um, The Epic and the Novel, as kind of his point of entrance into this um, work by Bose. And Shudipto shows that Bose detects certain aspects of the Mahabharata, such as um, its presentation of Yudhishthira as this kind of fallible human being um, that soothes the sensibility of a more modern reader. And so ultimately, Shudipto is arguing that this story is kind of articulating a modern coming-of-age story through Yudhishthira. Um, the next essay is by Pamela Lotspeech, and she's actually investigating representations of Draupadi in three different modern novels that were all written uh, after the, in, um, the Indian independence movement. So the first one is um, the Bengali essay, Epar Gunga Opur Gunga, um, by Jyotirmai Devi, and then Pratibha Rai's Oriya Yajnaseni, and then Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni's English, The Palace of Illusions. And um, Pam's chapter demonstrates how in you know, the past 50 years, Draupadi has become a, a really multivalent figure in Indian literature and used for very different um, purposes. And she illustrates this really beautifully in her essay. And then the second to last chapter is by Sucheta Kanjilal, and she's looking at caste in contemporary Mahabharatas. Um, and she draws our focus to modern representations of lower caste and tribal figures, but especially Ekalavya, um, who is you know, probably one of the most um, tragic figures in the Mahabharata tradition, and, and one that's also been quite important for um, low caste communities, especially in modern India. Um, but Sucheta is actually looking at two Bengali short stories by Mahasweta Devi and then Kiran Nagarkar's English play Bedtime Stories to find out what happens to marginalized characters in the modern world. And um, she, what she really does is she demonstrates just how complex it is to, to represent these social, social marginalities in contemporary India. And um, she also reveals, because she's looking at these two authors, Devi and Nagarkar, who themselves come from upper caste backgrounds, but who are using like the story of Iqlebi and the story of these other, um, you know, Nishada and um, tribal Adivasi figures. Um, at times, Devi and Nagarkar are reflecting the very oppressive structures that they're trying to work to overturn with their um, retellings. 
And the final essay, 18th, is um, Philip Lutkendorf's A Long Time Ago in a Galaxy Far, Far Away, the Mahabharata as Dystopian Future. And um, Philip is looking at uh, this trilogy of graphic novels uh, called The Korva Empire, which was released through uh, Campfire Graphic Novel Series. Um, and he's kind of looking at how this international visual code of science graphic novels, how it's used to texturize the Mahabharata's tale of um, you know, immense conflict and violence. And uh, as the title suggests, he, he finds that the trilogy draws upon another really important trilogy, uh, the original Star Wars movie trilogy, uh, New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi, uh, so as to create a Mahabharata that is at the same time archaic, but also dystopian. And yeah, that is part four of the four parts of many Mahabharatas. So in putting together this wide array of, um, of, of papers, what uh, what themes stand out? What what themes uh, unite this this um, uh, <laughs> collection of diverse studies on this thing known as the Mahabharata? What you may also wish to draw on what you say in your intro, if you'd like, but without putting words into your mouth, how would you think of this as a volume? Yeah. Um, well, one major theme that. Uh, that sort of immediately comes to mind is maybe, maybe in some ways the lack of a theme that the Mahabharata is sort of is is no one thing, right? I think you often get one person or another saying like, "Oh, the Mahabharata is, um, you know, the ancient is an ancient Hindu text," you know, things like that, right? Um, to which to which you have to say. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no, right? Um, and I think you can, one thing that our volume does is it sort of problematizes in hopefully a really constructive way any one label that anyone might be tempted to put on the Mahabharata, right? So is it is it Hindu or is it not, right? Our volume gives two answers to that. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? Sometimes it's Jane. Sometimes it's... Um, sometimes its relationship with religion is sort of at an angle. Um, is it orthodox? Is it heterodox? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? It's, it's, it's both. Um, when told by different, by, by different storytellers and when heard by different audiences, it is absolutely both. Um, is, it, is it affirmative? Sometimes, yes, you get exactly what you expect. Is it also surprising? Yes. Sometimes you can, it doesn't at all give you what you expect. Again, it totally depends on, um, on what you're looking at. And so in this way, there are no sort of categorical boundaries that the Mahabharata doesn't overstep. And we think that that's one of the, the big selling points of the book is that you will, if, if you are familiar with the Mahabharata already or with um, one Mahabharata or maybe two or maybe more, that this book will challenge and expand your views of, of what we, you think the Mahabharata is. Um, so so that's, one, that's one bit. Um, at the same time that the Mahabharata is, sort of is no one thing, um, it's not, it's 
both right, both both early and and medieval and pre-modern and very much modern, right? It's um it's in any number of languages, it's in any number of media. It's it has this wonderful, wonderful, um, unconstrained quality. Um, but at the same time, I think one one big theme that that Sohini and I were trying to draw out is this idea that um we think it's really helpful to think of the Mahabharata as sort of as a genre, um, right? So it's no one thing, but maybe what would happen if we thought of it as a literary genre unto itself or an artistic genre unto itself? And in that, we're very much drawing on A.K. Ramanujan, um, who wrote of um, classical Tamil poetry that the whole thing is like a self-reflexive paradigm of that's sort of based on the system of presence and absence, presences and absences. And when you hear any one poem, you also hear all the ones that you aren't hearing at the moment. And we, we very much wanted many Mahabharatas to sort of teach the reader to read like that and to, to think like that about the Mahabharata to, any time the reader is exposed to one Mahabharata to sort of hear all of the others in the background or see all of the others in the background. And when we think of the Mahabharata as a literary genre, that also helps us think of like what unites all of them, right? So um, themes, stories, characters, aesthetic points of view, right? There are all of these things that um, are very much sort of uh, linking qualities between Mahabharatas and Mahabharatas respond along those axes to one another. Um, so, yeah, so we wanted to say that sort of while, while the Mahabharata is no one, anytime you say the Mahabharata is something, there will be some other Mahabharata will come along that will challenge what you've just said. Um, if we think, I think in more broadly literary terms, there is a way of there was a way of approaching the Mahabharata as a massive, massive genre of with multiple instantiations, right? Um, that is, I think, helpful and constructive, and in some ways, really unifying. So, so those are two major themes, and another that I don't know. We hope is self evident to the readers, but um, but it might not be. So I'm going to say it anyway. But that we love is the sort of trans-historical nature of a lot of the issues that were coming up. So I think a lot of the time we think of, um, you know, gen- like gender and caste and things like that, uh, things that belong to like modern Mahabharatas or like modern discourse. And I think one of the real selling points of our book is that we show how issues like gender and caste or performance Things like that are, we trace those issues really, they come up in early on in the book, in the early sections of the book, you see, you see gender right away, you see performance right away, you see caste right away, you see, um, you see Mahabharatas that are sort of heterodox right away. And then you see, you see all of those themes sort of carry on through the second section of the book about Sanskrit Mahabharata's plural, you see them carried on very, very beautifully in, um, in the third section of the book about the vernacular and regional Mahabharata's. 
And then, of course, you see them emerge in the in the modern part of the book. But, you know, we, we really, really wanted to show that, like, some of the questions that we sort of think of as being, like, new questions is that when you think of the whole Mahabharata tradition, like, they're totally not new questions. <laughs> These are questions and issues that have been um, asked and debated for a long, long time, going all the way back to, you know, the earliest Sanskrit Mahabharatas. So... Um, so, so those are th- like three sort of major themes of the book, I think. So, Hini, I don't know if you want to add to that. But. No, I think you did a really great job. But uh, just an- another interesting, I guess, maybe a character who travels across the four different Ooh, sections yeah. of the book would be Krishna, right? And very, mm, if you look yes. at Larry's essay, again, Nell's talking about this really interesting relationship between Yudhishthira and Krishna. And then you come to my essay where I'm talking about, you know, kind of retelling the Mahabharata as a devotional bhakti narrative with Krishna as the hero. And then you come to Ahona and what is Bunkim and Tagore saying about Krishna and very different things. And so also you can see how characters and narratives change over time as well. And, and again, the Virata Parvan, we have, you know, uh, four, three different essays on the volume that are basically just talking about the Virata Parvan and right. how that narrative right. changes as well. Right. Which was so wonderful because it it's one of the ways in which you really see the, all of the, these retellings in, in going back to the Virata Parvan again and again, these retellings are going back to a part of the Mahabharata that in, intentionally and self-consciously retells itself. And so it's one of the great places where you see that multiplicity really and truly emerging from within. So yeah, like the characters are themselves themes throughout all of the different sections. Yeah, especially what Samwini said about um, Krishna and... Um, and yeah, and in some ways, I think a lot of the the focus on performance in the different essays um, in the various sections of the book also sort of emerges from this Virata Parvan um, like archetype of of what does it mean to perform one's role and how do we how do we engage in sort of self critical performance and performance that makes fun of who we are? Um, all of that is right there in the Virata Parvan. Um, and it's wonderful to see it sort of pop up again, again and again and again in all these different contexts um, throughout the volume. So you're obviously both quite interested in the Mahabharata, and uh, both of you are dissertating on the Mahabharata. Tell us a bit about your specific interest, perhaps your dissertation, or, or like what is your what what is your core interest in the Mahabharata in terms of scholarship currently? Uh, so, so I can go first. Um, so. Uh, I'm currently working on finishing or trying to finish my dissertation um, at UC oh, Berkeley. Wait, before, uh, I know the pains all too well of, of, of trying to finish a dissertation. And in the words of the wise Yoda, there is no try, do or do not. But go uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I think Nell could describe me as a real Star Wars buck. Um, I'm yeah. a huge Star Wars fan. My dog is named Leia. Uh, Princess Leia. I was so excited about Philip Luckendorf's essay on Star Wars and Mahabharata. So I love that you brought that up, Raj. Thank you. So I am finishing. I'm not trying. I am finishing my dissertation. Um, yes, which is uh, titled uh, Region and Religion in Retellings of the Mahabharata. And um, it's basically a study of how regional religious traditions in pre modern South Asia transformed the Mahabharata epic into a devotional narrative focused on the Hindu deity, Krishna. And, um, 
you know, with my undergraduate students when I'm teaching them a Mahabharata class, um, and I'm trying to kind of convey just what a violent and um, it's depressing the right word in narrative the Sanskrit Mahabharata can be. It's it's telling the story of a war in which 1.6 billion people die, right? Um, I often compare it to Game of Thrones for my students, just because there are so many different characters to keep track of. And sometimes their names sound alike. You have Tyrion and Tywin and you have Driodhana and Dushasana. It's sometimes hard to keep track of who is who. But um, so, right. So there's this ancient Sanskrit Mahabharata telling this violent story in which 1.6 billion people die. Um, but my project is, my dissertation project is examining how two retellings, a 15th century Tamil poem and a 17th century Basha or old Hindi one, are both reframing this epic as a devotional Hindu bhakti narrative focused on Krishna. Um, and I think this project makes two broad contributions to the study of South Asian religions. I think the first is that it offers a detailed comparative study of Hindu devotional poems in two languages, again, from opposite ends of India. And we, we, we talk of this um, bhakti as kind of a pan-South Asian concept, right? And there are shared genres, tropes, and stories in Hindu Vaishnava bhakti texts from every corner of India. But South Asian Hindu um, devotional traditions have largely been studied separately in their own distinct regional contexts, you know, so just looking at either uh, Hindi bhakti poems or Tamil poems. So I think that's one intervention I see my dissertation attempting to make is giving, you know, these detailed comparisons of these two bhakti mahabharatas. Um, and the other uh, contribution I would say my dissertation makes is that it seriously challenges an established position in South Asian studies that relegates devotional or religious literature and courtly slash political literature to these mutually exclusive worlds. So both of my Mahabharatas are, you know, Hindu devotional bhakti retellings, but they also both make claims of um, courtly patronage. Um, the 15th century Tamil Mahabharata claims to be um, written at the request of this local Kunkar chieftain in Tamil Nadu. And uh, my Hindi Mahabharata praises Aurangzeb um, multiple times in the poem and claims to have been composed for him. And this is really interesting when we're thinking about uh, kind of these conceptions we have of Aurangzeb today as this, you know, Hindu temple destroying um, Muslim fanatical emperor. But uh, this is a Hindu Basha Bhakti Mahabharata that claims to have been composed for this same individual. Um, and so, yeah, so that's another thing I'm trying to do with my dissertation is kind of complicate the, these boundaries we see, this court temple divide we kind of have in the study of pre-modern South Asian literature. Now, would you like to tell us about your research? Sure. Yes. Um, so in general, I'm really interested in early Sanskrit tellings of the Mahabharata, very much including the Sanskrit Mahabharata itself. But, um, but what I've been working on for a while are retellings of the Mahabharata or more, more often parts of the Mahabharata in works of Sanskrit kavya um, and in Sanskrit sort of literary genres, I guess, more broadly. Um, and one of the reasons I'm interested in this is that if, 
is that at least if you want a sort of early reception history of the Mahabharata, if you want to sort of know, understand like what what was an an, an early Indian self-understanding of the Mahabharata in like the first millennium, the body of texts that you're looking at are going to be literary, right? They're, you're not going to have um, commentaries from that early period, at least certainly not whole ones. Um, you're not going to get so much, um, you know, works of philosophy and so on that will, that will comment on parts of the Mahabharata. No, it's, it's all in poetry and it's all in drama, right? It's all in those stories. It's in Champus, it's in Dvisandhana Kavya's, right? The, you know, sort of stories that tell, um, that tell two stories at once. And um, that is, I think that's quite amazing that, that really when it comes to like that, really that whole first millennium, what you've got in terms of um, how we, how we know now how the Mahabharata was, was received and understood and interpreted, that is totally a, a, a literary world. Um, I should say, of course, that it's not only in Sanskrit. Um, I think some of the work on Jain Mahabharatas, especially from the, that earlier period, um, is doing an excellent job of showing that, that Sanskrit was not the only language in which this was happening. But, um, but my interests are, what does the Mahabharata look like in the world of Sanskrit literature in the first millennium? And I've been interested primarily for my dissertation in the corpus of six Mahabharata plays that were originally attributed to Bhasa. These are short plays um, that I believe have had a, um, a life in Kudiyatam drama um, and that were certainly sort of recovered in the South. So there's the Southern aspect to them. Um, but in my in my research, what I'm trying to do is really think about how these how these plays, and particular particularly the Pancharatra, this play that I'm writing about for the um, for the book, are incorporating and um, and reacting to and dealing with these major themes that you see in the Mahabharata conflict. Um, sort of <laughs> the what is dharma, <laughs> right? These are the, the big, big questions, right? Um, and they're and they're right there in the plays. Um, for example, the Pancharatra, like much of the Mahabharata, is sort of told from the perspective of the Kauravas. Um, you, it's framed like both. The, it's a three act play, and the first act and the third act are both take place sort of very much from the perspective of Duryodhana and Shakuni and. Uh, karana and in that they sort of maintain um anyways other other of the um many other of the of the the plays in this group do the same thing they sort of maintain that karva focus um not all of them but many of them and in doing that just sort of maintaining this commitment to telling the story of the mahabharata you know from the quote-unquote losing side that's no small thing right um so anyway, I'm I'm interested in in these plays in particular, but really in the whole in the whole span of um of early Sanskrit tellings of the Mahabharata, including frankly in um in Alankara Shastra and Sanskrit literary theory, where you get 
really incredible reflections on um, what it means to a um, what the what the Mahabharata sort of is as a work of literature. Um, what is it doing? Who's the audience? What are you supposed to get out of all of this? And B, what does it mean to retell the Mahabharata in a different genre in Kavya? Are there some things that sort of are allowed in Kavya that are maybe not in the epic or vice versa? Um, these are questions that, um, that literary thinkers like Anandavaratana and Kuntaka, both Kashmiri, both late first millennium, um, really thought a lot about. So, so I'm interested in it, in, in really like, what, did, what, did, what was the sort of literature of the Mahabharata including literary theory and discourse on that in the first millennium. Well, that's fascinating. The Mahabharata is, uh, is clearly, probably even demonstrably, uh, one of the most gripping, sophisticated pieces of literature on the globe. It is staggeringly engaging, complex, I mean, gripping. You don't know what the word gripping means until you've stumbled across any of the scenes. Bhishma expositing sagacious wisdom, uh, you know, on his bed of arrows. The birth of Drishtadumna. Like, mind-blowing. You're not sure what they were on. Or, you know, clearly this must have been inspired because people don't think like this. Something was going on. Anyhow, regardless of the world behind the text, the world within the text is, is, is um, inexhaustibly gripping and insightful. And then on top of that, and unsurprisingly, probably because of that, um, this rich story world um, has is a fixture of culture and has been for centuries and millennia. And so it, it of course, is a genre. Um, uh, without question, it's a genre. Without question, it's it's formative. It's 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 um, inextricable from the bedrock of anything we can call Hindu, right? Because before the Mahabharata, you know, what can we call Hindu? And even now, what can we call Hindu? But nevertheless, uh, it seems to me that the work of the Mahabharata is bringing together these very disparate worldviews into something that is a tale of the lineage of a people and a tribe that's inclusive of just everything under the sun known in that world in a way, you know, so they could point to everything they knew but enough of me yammering on about god knows what what no, i wanted please, to say please continue. <laughs> no, what i wanted to say um uh, i either need more sleep or more coffee or a bit of both but um randomly i have this this habit of not interrupting guests when they when they're in the flow um but i wanted to touch on a couple things one i found dissertating to be an extremely difficult time. Perhaps I should have realized going into it that any birthing process is excruciating, but also fruitful, <laughs> you know, upon delivery. Um, yeah. Um, um, uh, after the podcast, uh, if you are interested, I can share some of the strategies and tips that really helped me be um, a highly functional aesthetic with a desktop. Uh, <laughs> that, that, would be be <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Um, because so far, all of our tapas has like been for not, you know, like Shiva has not shown up. <laughs> in time, so in time. we're not working hard I'll, enough. <laughs> I'll teach you to earn the heart of Shiva. Yeah. Not to worry. Um, I mean, that could be a podcast series on its own, right? Are you Just, kidding me? Yeah, seriously. Uh, don't get Give me us started a boon. on. Uh, Give yeah. us a boon. Yeah. I, I will. I, I will. After this podcast, we'll talk. Um, and the other thing is that. Uh, the the analog, the analogy, the, the teaching tool of comparing the Mahabharata 
to Game of Thrones is deeply resonant. It's one that I've used before. Um, I taught continuing studies, so adult learners primarily at the University of Toronto. 2010, I started, and formally until 2020, but really about until 2017. It's about seven solid years. And um, one of my signature courses there was one I taught every year that I designed called Myth and Meaning, where the first half of the course was ancient mythology, typically ancient Near Eastern, a little bit of Indian. And the second half of the course was sci-fi fantasy. And then the whole, and the running, the running theme of the course was, well, at the, at the end, it was like, you know, um, uh, religious um, uh, motifs, narratives, archetypes, sci-fi fantasy. It's just safe when it's sci-fi fantasy. But, you know, there's a reason why Star Wars is actually a religion for some people, right? But that's a story for another day. So uh, uh, dissertating Boone, park that for another day. Um, 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 the, the power of myth, pun intended, park that for another day. Let's refocus back to your journeys. You're obviously very interested in this. You obviously um, um, are to be congratulated for this undertaking, particularly so early in your careers. Uh, it's a purva. It's a purvata that folks would pop out a volume like this before their dissertations. Um, uh, just to give you a sense, I mean, you obviously know, but uh, I'm currently co-editing with McComas Taylor of Australia National University, this um, this collection of papers by a brilliant rich scholars. It's called Revisions and, sorry, Visions and Revisions of Sanskrit Narrative. And it's looking oh, at, wonderful. at Itihasa Purana. Oh, I want, I want to know more about and, this. And put a pin we'll in that. And oh, there's, there's so such rich papers. And this must be, what, five or six years out of my dissertation. I'm in this very strange space of being a productive, connected, in essence, independent scholar. All of my affiliations are teaching, typically. Um, and, you know, I thought it was rather ballsy to be co-editing this myself. I mean, McComas was happy to have me do most of the admin work, and and uh, I was delighted that people would were so eager and you know keen to contribute. Um, and I cannot imagine uh, taking that on um, uh, pre-defense, pre-dissertation. So either the star is aligned for you, or you're both a little bit nuts, or all of the above. I'm not sure, but it definitely the latter. I was yeah. like nuts. <laughs> Probably a little bit nuts. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, Wouldn't necessarily recommend editing a volume before you're a tenure track professor with lots of free time on your hands, but an incredibly rewarding experience. And I'm, I, I think I speak for both Nell and I that we're just really proud of the volume and we can't wait to physically get it in our hands and, and yeah. hold it. Yeah, I also have to say, you know, um, I think there's, as, as much as this has taken so much, you know, time and energy away from uh, our dissertation writing, and, you know, I mean, we started, I think we started the volume, possibly, I think Sony had not even taken her exams yet, neither of us had proposed our dissertations, um, but there we were writing a book proposal, but I, but I have to say that um, both of our, both, both of our research at this early stage, I think is totally, has totally already been enriched by having done this project. Um, we're, we're better scholars. We're so much better scholars now, um, than we were before. We know so much more. It was really educational for both of us. 
um, to, to really like expand our vision beyond um, the Mahabharatas that we had focused on earlier. Well, it's, it would necessarily be educational in that um, it, it, it is, you're on the front lines of the production of knowledge, right? And more than just on the front lines, you're helping to curate or cater or, or you know, form the battalions type thing. You know, you're, you're, you're witnessing this, this new knowledge come into existence that people don't even know exists because the scholars themselves were figuring it out a few short months before you got to see it. So that's really exciting. Um, uh, I imagine you both, um, I imagine you both uh, uh, envision uh, professorial academic research paths we yeah, hope but... so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed, inshallah. Um, that was once a dream job for me as well, actually. Mm. I haven't closed the door on that. I think I think it would be it'd be uh, deeply enriching. I do miss undergrads. I get to teach them uh, every couple of years. I'll have an undergrad contract. But um, you, whatever path is for you, I'm, uh, I'm sure you'll you'll land on your feet one way or another. Um, one thing that I'm realizing more and more um, uh, is that um, scholars in our field, and for those listening, um, there are many, many more graduates in our field under our jobs of that variety. And so, you know, it, there are a number of people who are stellar scholars and teachers and people um, and the jobs just don't exist. And so I'm discovering that one can research and collaborate uh, 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 with academic colleagues uh, and essentially uh, be independent or, 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 or self-employed in some way. Um, and so I just thought I'd throw that out there. Perhaps that's a pin for another day, but who knows what's possible. Yeah, I think when you're in sort of in the in the field of Mahabharata studies and just sort of watching that field grow, I mean, this the field of Mahabharata studies within South Asian studies or within Hindu studies, right, is is very much um, its own thing. And I think Sohini and I are really excited to be on sort of the this new frontier of it, right, um, to be expanding this this field of Mahabharata studies to Mahabharata as well beyond the Sanskrit Mahabharata. Um, so we hope that, you know, both for us, but also for all of the um, junior scholars in our volume, that the, that the group that we've brought together, and it was so wonderful to see them interact at the symposium and for them to sort of be part of um, one another's processes in writing and editing. Um, we'd each we we constantly sort of send um, chapters to to contributors who hadn't written them written them um, over the course of the editing process because so and so is writing about you know Dropity and oh what did this other person say about Dropity okay we shared her chapter there it is um, so it ended up being really collaborative and I and I hope that um, sort of no matter where our careers take us that 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 spirit of collaboration will be there and that the idea that, especially with something like the Mahabharata, you can't do it yourself, right? It's not set up to be the work of sort of one scholar in an ivory tower somewhere. It is very much set up to be a collaborative field and um, for us all to be working together. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, 
there's this idea that the Mahabharata is a cursed text to either tell or translate or retell. And I feel like by uh, teaming up with Nell, hopefully we, two of us have just cut that curse in half, maybe only observing half of its, um, whatever happens to us. But um, yeah, I just, uh, and another just great thing was getting to know Nell and uh, getting to work with her and um, yeah. We've, you yeah, know, and, and now, you know, we've, um, we're also working as dramaturgs for um, a Mahabharata production in New York. And this has also opened up a lot of other opportunities um, for us. And um, I'm so glad that we get to continue to work together even um, after this volume comes out. Oh, fantastic. That sounds great. My humble advice to you, um, not that you need any advice, obviously. Perspective, I should say, is more apropos is is um, to continue seeing yourselves and acting as scholars, researchers in your own right, irrespective of what that um, position may or may not look like. Continue to collaborate, continue to produce. Um, You can own that. And when you own that, whether you have an academic job or not, um, you don't see yourself as beholden to the to the dictates of a department or, or or really anything except what you're passionate about studying and finding people that you're passionate about doing it with and doing it. And so, anyhow, enough of my pontificating for one day. Was there anything else about the the the, the many Mahabharata's volume that you wanted to touch on before we mm. close for today? I think one thing we just would like to maybe mention is who we think uh, might be interested in this book or who are we think this could be a great audience for. Right. Um, Speaking of the intended reader. Yeah, intended <laughs> audiences, right? Um, reader response theory. Who is the model reader of many Mahabharatas? Um, uh, and, right. and you, 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 you <laughs> Not bring to up, give it away, but there's no one model reader. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, you know, in Raj, bringing up, you brought up how much you enjoy teaching undergrads, and I think that's something Nell and I just both really have a love for. And um, originally we intended this book is hopefully a textbook to be used um, in undergraduate classes, not just on the Mahabharata and Ramayana, though I feel, you know, every major university now has a Mahabharata and Ramayana class, but um, world literature classes, um, epic literature classes, the class you just mentioned, Raj, about um, uh, myth and mythology, the, uh, the we, myth and meaning, yes. Oh my God, I want to take that class. That sounds amazing. Um, and it, and one thing that's been wonderful is that we've had um, colleagues at other universities reach out to us um, at Lawrence University and St. Lawrence University, um, Elon University, UNC Asheville, asking uh, to see chapters that they could use in their courses on the South Asian Apex U Chicago Um It's so we're really excited about that. Um, and, and we hope, and you know, again, paying tribute to many Ramayanas because I think that's the textbook that Nell and I both used as undergrads when we were kind of discovering our love for South Asian literature um, and poetry. Um, And also just one of the really amazing things about this volume is the scholars come from such different disciplines, right? We have um, scholars who work on history, performance studies, literary criticism, religious studies, political science, gender studies, philology, philology both in the old school German Indology kind of philology, but also philology as um, literary criticism, right? So um, we hope that um, people in in those different disciplines will also be excited by the essays in this volume. 
um, also comp lit and world lit. Um, we brought that up again. I think Nell and I both also see ourselves a bit as comparativists um, and kind of anyone who works on South Asian literature, if you work with Sanskrit and any other language in a way, we're all comparativists in a way. Um, so uh, we really think that um, a lot of themes in the volume would appeal to scholars of comparative literature and world literature as well. Um, but also, you know, for South Asian audiences, for audiences in India, um, I think we all know the famous Ramanujan quote, right? No Hindu ever reads the Mahabharata for the first time because it's already there already. And there's versions of the, there's retellings and multiple versions of that quote itself with the Ramayana and hearing it, telling it. Um, and, you know, I, for one, uh, when I was a child, I learned about the Mahabharata from Amrachitra Katha comic books. My Bhakti, my grandmother would bring me um, from the Durdarshan TV serial and, or, just stories that my Pati would tell from her own memory, right? And um, I think that's one of the great things about this book is that even for South Asian audiences who have an idea maybe of just one Mahabharata or, or multiple Mahabharatas, I think there's something new for everyone. And um, we're really excited that um, Primus Books in Delhi will be coming out with the Indian edition of this book um, in the U.S. at State University of New York or SUNY Press. But um, so we're, I hope it brings something new to South Asian audiences who um, the Mahabharata is already a really important narrative for them, but maybe they could learn something new as well. Fantastic. Um, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you for, thank having, you for having us. Having it's, us. It's, it's been a delight. Yes, indeed. Uh, and and for me, as I mentioned at the outset, well, you know, you have to end how you began because everything has to be framed because the Mahabharata. Uh, it's not just <laughs> yes. a delight. It is. It was a double delight for those of you listening. We have been speaking with Sohini Sarah Pillay uh, uh, of UC Berkeley and Nell Shapiro Hawley uh, of uh, uh, University of Chicago, also preceptor in Sanskrit at Harvard University, and they are the dynamic duo who have co-edited this um, monumental. Um, um, landmark piece of scholarship, the many Mahabharatas, Sunni, brand spanking new. Um, um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the multiplicity of this thing called the Mahabharata. Take care. <laughs>